Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to Jude 3 Project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Jew 3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And today we're joined by a very special guest. Uh, who is a part of Jude 3, uh, Dr. Vince Bantu. He's been on several times. He's no stranger. Uh, Welcome back, Dr. Bantu. Hey, hey, Lisa. Good to see you again. Good to be back. Good to have you back on on the podcast. Um, So today we're going to talk about something that uh, you're experiencing in real time now, which is uh, what's going on in St. Louis. For those who haven't been watching the news or who don't know, or who may have saw something on social media but don't really know what's going on. Um, why are there protests right now in St. Louis? Mm, yeah. So, um, yeah, just for those that uh, maybe haven't heard the, the details. Um, so there was, a, there was an incident that happened in 2011 where a St. Louis police officer uh, named Jason Stockley was uh, killed, uh, a young African-American man, Anthony Lamar Smith, uh, in 2011, they were involved in a high-speed chase. Uh, Anthony Lamar Smith uh, was apparently uh, involved in drugs, and um, and there's a there's a video you you can see the full video of all the, the everything from you know from the police uh, dash cam, but uh, they were they, you know they he had started to drive away and tr- was trying to get away, evade uh, um, you know resisting arrest or evading arrest, and so they chased him for a couple of minutes and ended up. Uh, uh, crashing into Mr. Smith's car, and then uh, Officer Stockley, a white police officer, uh, then got out of the car. Him and his partner got out of the car and approached the driver's side, and then he uh, shot him uh, five times, killing Anthony Lamar Smith in the car. And this was six years ago, and so the trial's been going on, and the verdict was just released on Friday, so just five days ago, uh, that the judge had found uh, and, um, J- Officer Stockley not guilty of first-degree murder. Uh, and so this was um, extremely upsetting, not only to people in the Black community, but people across the city and across the country who is, to whom it seemed pretty clear uh, that Officer Stockley had intended to and did murder 
Anthony Lamar Smith, that this wasn't self-defense as he claimed it was and his attorney claimed it was. And there's lots of, you know, evidence that have led a lot of people and, and just kind of circumstances and, and what happened and transpired that led people to uh, see it as murder and that, that Officer Stockley is guilty of murder. Um, you know, number one, uh, probably the most the most uh, kind of damning and just even like um, uh, just really disturbing uh, a aspect of it was the fact that uh, during the police chase, Officer Stockley was recorded um, as saying, uh, we're going to kill this mother effer, don't you know it? Um, and that is clear that he said that. Uh, he doesn't deny saying it. He says he doesn't remember saying it. And the judge who acquitted him of murder, uh, Pat wrote it off as saying, well, we all say things in the heat of the moment. Um, however, uh, uh, even the judge's kind of dismissal of that statement has proven to be very unsatisfactory, even to people in law enforcement and, and in the ju and justice system, of course, uh, and of course, let alone in the black community and the community at large. Uh, because uh, while we all say some things in the heat of the moment, uh, Officer Stockley actually did uh, end up killing this person. Um, who had not attacked them, uh, he was, you know, he was resisting arrest and fleeing the scene. But, um, uh, and, but then also the fact that uh, Officer Stockley claims that Anthony Lamar Smith had a gun um, and that he was pulling it and going to fire on him, and that's why it was self-defense. The problem with that is that the DNA tests show that, uh, that Anthony Lamar Smith's DNA was not on the gun and that Officer Stockley's DNA was on the gun. Um, also, the fact that Officer Stockley took off his gloves when he was after killing Anthony Mar Smith and then uh, began to uh, just go about the scene. He took off his gloves, which was not part of police procedure, but it also gave him an excuse as to why his DNA was on the gun uh, after, uh, according to his story, after having lifted the gun and started to search the scene. Um, but that's not normal procedure, uh, from what I understand, to be removing your gloves uh, after, in a situation like that. Um, also, and many other police officers have said this as well. It seems very strange that Officer Stockley, uh, after killing Anthony Mar Smith, made several trips back and forth between uh, Smith's car and his own uh, police vehicle as well. Um, and it just makes it seem very likely and very clear that he had planted that gun in his car. Um, and it's not normal procedure after killing uh, a suspect to be making so many trips back and forth between your vehicle. Uh, that even and even uh, Officer Stockley's. Uh, partner Bianchi, um, you know, had, did not, you know, he he did not testify to seeing any gun that Smith had. Uh, also, the video shows that Officer Bianchi, Officer Bianchi did not have his weapon out, but it was holstered, which would not would not lead lend one lend lend to the you know idea that that Smith had a gun and that he was drawing it on him. And so, uh, just with all of these different things, it seems really clear that Officer Stockley did intend to and did murder Anthony Lamar Smith. Uh, and again, even uh, police officers in different um, groups like the Ethical Society of Police in St. Louis have said that that even they support a, a, a guilty verdict for murder of uh, for Jason Stockley. Um, even our mayor, Lida Cruson in St. Louis, has said that she was disappointed at the verdict. Um, and, and, you know, it, it just seems clear to people at all levels of society that this was a clear case of murder. And yet he was let go. And so it's just yet another uh, example of, unfortunately, uh, just a long list over the last few years um, of cases that have really come to light. And that's not to say anything about the countless number of cases of police brutality and murder that are happening uh, across the country uh, that don't get news 
you know release or don't make the make the big news but uh but you know because <clears throat> because again of such the the clear cut nature of it uh and the fact that he was let go uh, many protesters had had come you know have been coming out in full force ever since then uh friday afternoon is when it really popped off when they released the verdict friday morning and immediately people were on the scene downtown st louis and uh they were protesting and uh and then um they some of the protesters began to block uh the police in their uh getting onto the buses that were bringing them in uh and so that's when the the police deployed tear gas uh, as well as mace, and I was present for that protest, and I was I witnessed uh, you know people being um, being maced in the face, and I saw police officers telling people to move and disperse, and then like about one second or two seconds maximum after telling them to disperse, spraying them in the face with mace, uh, and not really actually giving them a chance to disperse, um, and so uh, that that protest ended pretty pretty quickly, and then we had a very large one. Uh, in the Central West End neighborhood of St. Louis, which is like kind of the most like posh, wealthy neighborhood of St. Louis. And we did a protest and there was about, that was definitely the largest one. There was over a thousand people who had come into that uh, protest and uh, and it was a peaceful protest. There was, uh, you know, unfortunately there were a few uh, uh, zealots in the crowd who did end up throwing some bricks at the mayor's house uh, and also at a couple of businesses, broke a couple of windows um, but uh, nobody was attacked. Nobody, there was no looting going on. Uh, you know, there were a couple of windows broken, but, uh, you know, nothing was stolen or there, um, and most, and, you know, again, it was a thousand people. And just from me being in the midst of that crowd looking out, it was a, first of all, it was a mixture of people. I mean, I saw like Arabs, I saw Indians, I saw Hispanic people. I saw most, there were more white people than anybody. Uh, a lot of white people. I saw Jewish rabbis. I saw, college professors that I know personally in the crowd, college, many, many college students. College students might be even the largest demographic uh, in the protesting crowd. Many African-Americans of different social classes, clergy. Uh, it was a very mixed crowd of people and they were peaceful. Um, and, and it was a, it was a good, you know, it was a good event to raise awareness. But then after the, after the march had ended on Friday night, then there was a kind of a, that was when police really started to, get more aggressive was when uh, the mass numbers had really fizzled out and the protest just ended on its own uh, peacefully and, and, and decided to end by itself. But then when there was a few stragglers left kind of still in the streets talking, then the police started getting very aggressive and then started tear gassing people at that point and then arrest and there were several arrests made. Um, and so, uh, so that's that stuff has been going on ever since. And on Saturday, there was another protest in the in another kind of trendy area called the Del Mar Loop, which is actually around the corner from my house. And there again, there was a few windows broken um, in that protest. And there was, again, uh, you know, kind of harsh tactics deployed. Uh, and then there was artists that came out and fixed up the broken windows and painted them like pretty like almost immediate turnaround. And then uh, there's. You know, on on uh, Sunday, on there was a protest downtown that it, that again became violent, um, and then uh, I was I was able to participate in that as well. And even after, again, even after the majority of the protests had dispersed, there were only a few stragglers left. And I remember being downtown and actually seeing, uh, and actually for anybody that sees my Facebook, I posted a picture of this. There, I remember seeing lines of police officers. I mean, literally, like kind of marching uh, in like this propagandist and like intentionally intimidating form where I saw, you know, like 
dozens and dozens of police on one street marching down and then on other streets and they were closing people in on all sides and uh and we're not allowing some people to leave who were just around there's a lot of homeless people in that area uh downtown that are on the streets there's just, there were people just hanging out going out to eat and there were still protesters lingering and the people the police were banging their clubs and uh marching in unison and yelling and they were even doing a mock of like saying whose streets our streets um and then and many of them were like cursing and yelling loud and it was just very clear that they were trying to intimidate and it felt like a police state it felt like a military state downtown uh and i saw many people that were uh in pairs or just like kind of people walking by themselves who were like quickly running away from the police in fear um and it just it was very disturbing sight um and then uh you know, Monday night, uh, I, I was able to participate again in a, in a demonstration that was outside of the Justice Center, um, which is, you know, kind of right in our downtown court uh, courtroom area, kind of the legal center uh, of town. And again, there was a peaceful protest that, that happened there with several hundred protesters. And then yesterday, um, Tuesday, we had a, uh, I wasn't able to participate in this. I, I you know, um, I was uh, I was doing things with my family yesterday, but there was a an all city, uh, interfaith prayer service right downtown, um, you know, kind of right in the heart of downtown with the, uh, I think the Archbishop of St. Louis was the person who really convened that. And then, uh, but there were Jewish and African-American clergy and, um, and just, you know, clergy from all different denominations had joined together for a joint prayer service. Um, and then there's been meetings. I, I, I went to one uh, Monday and I'm going to another one on uh, tomorrow morning, actually, of different pastors and leaders who are getting together and just trying to think about how can we, you know, how can we solve these issues? How can we, how, what can we do to respond and really make a difference? So basically um, it's been a very tense, uh, yeah, very tense last five days in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and thank you for uh, being out there and, and representing um, just the church, because I think a lot of people um, make statements that pastors and leaders aren't at the forefront of this this fight. And people like yourself actually show that that's not true. There are clergy, there are people who are are being prophetic voices in these situations. And I, I think that's something that needs to be highlighted. For those who have watched this, and I know there's a lot of tension between um, sometimes Black Lives Matter and churches, um, what would you say to them? Um, because I think there's a need for us to work together in works like this. Um, how would you advise? Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, I, that's a great question. And, you know, um, it really, like, I, I think that it's very complex. And I think there's a lot of different um, valid points on different sides. Because I, I do think that there is a tension. And I do think that there is kind of a um, a chasm specifically between the black church and the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, and I think that it's really appropriate, especially at Jude 3, to be having that conversation. Because one thing that, that you've led us in, Lisa, in this, in this uh, community of Jude 3, is addressing issues that are most pertinent to the black church and to the African-American Christian experience. And I think that given our day where, especially right now, this last week, and in general, last few years, that this movement has really taken place, but then as we've seen, as that movement has come out, that there's a big tension between uh, the black church and there's a lot of disconnect between the black church and this new movement that I think is really 
timely to have that conversation and to be asking that question, which you know I think is is really complex. But as a as a way of like kind of synthesizing all the complexity of it, you know, when I when I enter into this issue as a as a pastor, as a seminary professor, as a scholar, but then also as a still relatively young <laughs> black man, you know, I'm I'm, I'm I'm starting to get some. I'm starting to get a lot of grades now, but uh, but you know I'm still pretty young and uh, and and have been and am still sometimes the victim of police discrimination myself. I feel like somewhere in some ways floating between these different worlds, and I see a lot of valid points on both sides. But again, kind of the the way I enter into it and from my own thinking, bring all the all the different factors together is I think about the relationship between. The Black Lives Matter and the Black Church, in a, in, almost in, in, through the analogy of a parent-child relationship, um, that I see, I see the relationship and the dynamic in many ways as analogous to parents and children, um, specifically where uh, there's been some distrust and some and some hurt and some neglect and some abuse uh, on both sides of that parent-child relationship, where that relationship has become strained and now. Uh, the, now the relation is disparate um, because when we look at it, if we're just being honest, I think, and I'm, I'm saying this as an African American pastor, that in many ways the Black Church uh, is not uh, reaching our young people, you know, as really as well as we could. And in many ways, the Black Church is kind of an institution that is predominantly for people that are middle aged uh, or older. Um, and of course, we have children, but. Really, uh, the young demographic, kind of 18 to 35, that's the demographic that oftentimes we're lacking the most, especially when you come into the inner city, especially when you come into the context of poverty. Um, in, in my community in North St. Louis, you go to most black churches and that age bracket is exactly the age bracket that is most lacking in almost like any black church is 18 to 35 from the community uh, that, you know, you'll have little kids, you'll have middle age, you have older people, and, you know, um, but what is it? What is it that we're doing wrong? What is it that we're lacking that once those children reach, you know, adulthood and we're not the ones bringing them to church anymore, losing them, right? Um, and so I think that there is a lot of ways in which, um, you know, we haven't connected with our youth in ways that we should. And so, this movement, this Black Lives Matter movement, is really predominantly being led by that very age bracket. The very age bracket that we are lacking in the church are the ones who are out here on the street marching. Um, and it's mostly young, black, urban adults, you know, late teens, 20s, that's the majority of the people. And it was just, it's just interesting to see here on the ground to see hundreds and hundreds of people, white, Asian, Hispanic, black clergy, but all following young black people. They were clearly the ones who were at the helm of it. The people with the bullhorns and the people with the mics, the people leading the chants were young urban African-Americans who looked like they were like 19, 20, 21 years old. And, and, and so, uh, so there's just so much complexity because now uh, these young people, many of them are thinking, well, I don't need to go to church. I have a church right here. I got hundreds of people who are following me. And, and honestly, I'm, I'm concerned about a lot of these young people because, um, you know, now they're on CNN and they're they're uh, being traveled around the country, brought around the country, like after Ferguson happened. Uh, and ever since then, they're being brought around the country as these leaders, uh, you know, um, all of these different sub organizations that are all part of this overall movement. 
uh, Black Lives Matter. I mean, because it really is just a movement. It's not like a it's not like there's an organization with like a president and a board of trustees. And, you know, like people talk about Black Lives Matter like it's a, a concrete thing, but it's more of a movement. And there's all these different organizations, but there are some commonalities to it. And and even the young activists here in St. Louis that I know, uh, I know that they're not going to church. I know they don't want to go to church. And I also know that they're living a very, most of them are living a very worldly lifestyle. And many of them are very much lost. Uh, but also knowing their stories, I know most of them are in broken homes. And most of them are in non-Christian uh, homes where they have, you know, maybe one parent. Maybe that parent is on drugs. Maybe they, uh, you know, just live a very worldly lifestyle. So they're not, you know, so again, when I look at these people, I don't see them as, um, primarily people to criticize, but more so I see them as lost children that need our guidance and need us to come alongside them. Because that's another reason why a lot of black churches are not getting involved in these protests, because they're saying, again, a valid critique of saying, well, there's no, there's no practical goals. There's no practical steps. I mean, you know, what, what, you know, what, what petition should I sign? Where should we, where are we going to boycott? What are we, how are we going to strategically shift our black dollars to make an economic difference uh, in the community? I mean, there was, again, another event. There was a mall that got shut down uh, this weekend out in the suburbs of St. Louis, which, you know, uh, but but I mean, for the most part, there has not been as much of like kind of a thought through strategic plan. Uh, and I get that. I understand that. But again, it's 19 and 21 year olds that are leading the thing. What do you expect them to be able to do? And so the very fact that there isn't as much organization and planning to it as maybe we might want or be used to is the very reason as to why we need to be coming alongside and supporting them and giving them our uh, strategic thinking and strategic planning skills that often they don't have. But that in that to me is just yet another example of how um, we're not coming alongside in a way we're kind of neglecting our children. Um, and, and we, we, you know, we're, and then they're kind of left to their own devices to figure it out for themselves, which is in many ways where our youth are at in general as a whole, that many times are left to just figure things out to themselves. A lot of these people in the street, these young people who are doing stuff, I, as a pastor, any young person in the street that's, that's involved in drugs, violence, uh, just, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff, they do not have a family support structure. And they're, you know, the, the church is not... Uh, you know, a place where they want to go, where I have to dress a certain way, where I have to talk a certain way, where I have to change every single thing about myself to fit in this place. Now, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of things our young people need to change. There's a lot of things that the, the, a lot of these young adults are doing that, that needs to really need to come out of a, a worldly lifestyle. But I mean, just as an example, I was just at a gathering with black pastors in the city uh, and we were planning a joint youth event. And the whole goal was to reach youth. Um, and and uh, and first of all, I, I didn't even want to get into because I didn't want to get jeered as much as I already did. But I'm like, why are we all I was the youngest person there. Why are we all a bunch of middle aged people sitting around talking about how to reach youth? Let, let's let's bring some youth leaders into this. Um, but then I made a suggestion like I knew a Christian rapper. And I said, how about we bring this Christian rapper to the event? And like you should have seen the way everybody looked at me like I was crazy. And I was and I'm just like, really, like that's the attitude we have. Like, you know, you're like, oh, no, we don't do that hip hop stuff. And I'm like, that's, you know. I mean, that's just one of many examples to why we're not connecting with our youth and, and it's on us to do it. And I mean, again, speaking of Christian hip hop, any Christian rapper will tell you that they get more support from white churches and white Christian, uh, you know, patrons and, and you know, uh, purchasers and consumers uh, than they do from the black church. And so, again, we have this, you know, and I mean, even here in St. Louis, like I, I know so many uh, young 
innovative young black pastors who are who are starting churches and that actually ha are reaching young people. And there's a good handful of them um, that are reaching that very demographic that many of the churches are are lacking. You know, I know black churches that are, you know, the almost the whole church is people in their twenties. And I'm like, that's amazing. Like, that's what we want to see. People, young people in our community lifting up holy hands to Jesus. Um, but again, they're doing things strategically to reach them. They preach in jeans and a t-shirt and they, uh, they might use some ebonics when they're preaching and they don't care if a young person comes in with their hat on as long as they're, you know, as long as what's on the inside is being transformed and they're seeking Jesus, right? Is it, it's just in so many ways contextualized and getting involved in these kind of protests and speaking to the, to the valid anger that a lot of these young people feel. Um, but a lot of these pastors, I mean, these are biblical, some of which even seminary trained uh, pastors who are reaching. You know, these are like pastors in their 30s, reaching people in their 20s. And a lot of them came up or associate pastors in more established black churches. And then when they felt called to plant a church to really reach youth, they get no support from established black churches with hundreds of thousands of dollar budgets and, and pastors with jets and cars and all this kind of stuff and, and, and are not getting, they get more support from white denominations and white churches than a lot of black church, than a lot of established black churches who kind of come up under their ministry, kind of, you know, be their son in the ministry and stay in their house. But I mean, the fact that even just the fact that church planting and supporting church planting is really largely not a part of the black church culture, that that's a problem. And we have to be supporting these ministers and these people that are really trying to reach the youth and are really connected to by their own age, connected to the youth. Um, and so again, like I see so many problems with, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. I get out and march with them as a way of showing them that I am here for you. And when I'm out in the streets, I'm uh, I'm chanting along with them. I don't, I, you know, when they go to the F the police thing, or then I'm like, all right, well, I ain't gonna say that. I'm 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 quiet now, right? I'm not. I can't get down with that. But but you know, when they say things, I'm saying Black Lives Matter with them, and I'm saying, you know, uh, like we have to end racism in the police force. I'm I'm trying to be out there with them. I'm gonna say it with them, um, and not just be there, kind of observing. You know, I did see some clergy come out, uh, but I noticed that a lot of them weren't chanting with them. Even some of the like chance that we should be able to say like, you know, racism has got to go in the police force. Right. But it's almost like, you know, and I, I can tell that some of them even that are trying to get into it are kind of like almost like tipping up to the water and dipping their toe in, you know, um, but I want to be, you know, I want to be there not only to hand out bottles of water and pray for people, but I want to chant with them. But I also wonder, and I have been in the streets talking to young people and, and, you know, I'm hearing their just visceral anger at the church and when they hear I'm a pastor and they, and I, you know, other, other clergy that have been uh, involved in this get the same thing. And that's the other thing about it too, is that most of the clergy that are involved in it are, are very liberal, right? They're, you know, people from really liberal denominations, um, that do that do care about justice, right? But that's that same divide between Christian liberalism uh, and biblical orthodoxy. That again, the a lot of the the a lot of the churches and pastors that are really strong on biblical authority and and kind of biblical orthodoxy are very slow to get involved in protesting and calling for justice, right? And 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 you know even sometimes even some of the good excuses are like, well, but we need to create solutions. I'm like, yes, that's very true. We do. But we also do need to raise up our voice. There is a role for the prophet in the Old in the New Testament. Like there's a biblical role of prophecy in saying there is systemic racism and sin in our police force, in our judicial system that needs to just be called out. And we need to be alongside our young people, linking arms with them, saying it with them so we can show them that the church is here with you. The church is here for you. 
uh, right? And not just the liberal church that's trying to pimp them and kind of bring them into their theology by saying, oh yeah, we care about you. We're, we're you know, we're concerned for black lives, but then, you know, they'll sometimes feel more support from a liberal church that doesn't even stand on the authority of scripture and the authority of the word uh, than a church that does, right? But we've had this pacified Jesus and this pacified theology that says, well, we just, we're, our response is we're going to hold a prayer meeting. Our response is we're going to hold a joint prayer service, right? And we, they, and, and even the language of it, right? We want peace, right? And then, whereas Black Lives Matter, we're saying we want justice, no justice, no peace, right? That's what they're chanting. And it's like, we have to understand the biblical concept of shalom. That shalom, which means peace, also means wholeness. It means justice. It means things being set right. And so it's not enough for us to only, yes, we need to pray. Amen. We need to get together and pray and have prayer services. But then we need to pray with our feet and call for systemic change and get involved and come together with our youth and not just have pastor meetings where we get together and talk about it. And then over here, stand hands up, don't shoot or Black Lives Matter or whoever else are having their meetings, but let's come together and let's have meetings together. And let's, you know, really, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, I think we have examples and models of that even in the civil rights movement and Dr. King, where it's, it's, it's really kind of eerie the way in which the, the dynamic between the black church and Black Lives Matter is so similar to the dynamic that Dr. King encountered uh, 50 years ago, right? Because uh, when Dr. King came to Chicago and wanted to get involved in movements there, that was when he really was rocked and, and encountered uh, a different dynamic that he had ever encountered before. Uh, and he describes it in his autobiography where in the South, you know, he, he was leading protests, leading marches, but he said that the North, the black inner cities of the North had such a different dynamic that it was so di it was so different that there was much more uh, kind of urban slum uh, you know conditions where blacks were who moved up in the migration had been had been boxed in into these you know metropolitan cities in New York and Pittsburgh and Detroit and Cleveland and Chicago and and in many ways uh, the anger was so much more real there. And this is where a lot of the black nationalist movements really were taking off. And so there was much more of a um, attitude of, no, we're not going to just be nice and pray and, and this and that. No, we're going to call for change. So when he came up there, that was the first time he had ever been booed, right? Where, by blacks. They were like, they didn't want to hear all this stuff about integration and we need to love our neighbor. They're saying, we're, we need to raise up our voices. And so, but instead of just being defensive of the black church or being kind of, uh, dismissing these young people, Dr. King worked with them and he called meetings with gang leaders in Chicago. And he, he, he gave them leadership positions in the movement. And then they, when they were marching, he gave them roles in the march to be like leading and guiding the marches, right? And he was working with them. And so, you know, I think that's really like the model um, that we have to continue to work into. Cause I think that it's in many ways as a community, I think we have, uh, some hurdles that Dr. King didn't have necessarily, because in many ways, uh, you know, Dr. King and the, the black community and the black church in the 60s was so much more integrated, was so much more, I mean, uh, blacks lived in the communities where the churches were at, right? And the community was whole. There were more fathers in the house. The, the community was just more cohesive. Now, not only have we had 50 years later, not only have we had white flight, but we've had black flight too, black middle-class flight, but yet, uh, blacks still have their churches in our community. So I mean, right here in St. Louis, in the north side, church in this community, the pastors, the elders, the leaders, the you know the majority of the members do not live in this community, but they come in on Sunday and then they and then they kind of act like they own the place, like they 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 got their stop sign put up in the middle of the street, they got their their crossing guard with his yellow vest, like stopping traffic, like he's a cop, and they got 
you know, the, the streets all narrowed out because there's people double parking in the middle of the street. And then, you know, and their fancy cars, then they all go back to, to North County, St. Louis uh, at 12 o'clock. And then, you know, from 12 o'clock Sunday afternoon until nine o'clock the next Sunday, uh, you know, the, the neighborhood is the same. And the people who actually live in the community, most of them are not going to that church. And so, you know, in many ways, we have this class divide between the black middle class who really runs the church, most of the churches and the poor who in many ways are not really brought into leadership, brought, not brought into the center of the church. And so we have to bring the poor, we have to bring the disenfranchised. They have to be at the center of the church, like that imagery of Dr. King, putting them in the front, being the leaders of it. We need a we need a reconciliation movement uh, in the black community, not only between uh, the uh, black older generation and the younger generation, the black church and Black Lives Matter, but also a class reconciliation between the black middle class and and the black inner city poor, where mm-hmm. all of these things really need to come together more uh, to work, you know, for a better solution. Yeah, yeah. and I agree. I think um, one of the one that's one of the points that. Um, Marvin McMichael makes in his book, uh, Preaching to the Black Middle Class, calling for the reconciliation of classes. Um, Mm. I think it's interesting what you were saying about support too, um, because I don't want to romanticize white support for for black church leaders, because I know a lot of black church leaders who will say Mm -hmm. that white support also becomes chains because they're restricted from speaking on these issues. there's flaws on both sides yep. um, communities. We have to, I think that the church planning movement and that whole idea is new for black churches. So leadership mm-hmm. has to really be taught that and that role and how we're going to do that. And in mm-hmm. a lot of cases, sometimes the new church plants aren't necessary. Sometimes revitalization mm-hmm. and people willing to work with older pastors I think could be more helpful because resources are already there. Buildings mm-hmm. are already owned. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of ways that we have to fight to reconcile mm-hmm. and build relationships between one another um, mm-hmm. to, to really help on a holistic way. What do you think for those who are listening that mm-hmm. want to get involved, that are in St. Louis, that want to get involved, what do you think would be some good next steps? Mm, yeah. I think, um, you know, I think, I think, you know, amen to everything you were saying, first of all. And, and I think, you know, uh, kind of with that, um, that that's, I think that's, that's why the, you know, I think the first steps really are to, you know, kind of speak out and to really get involved with, uh, these organizations that are just, you know, like some people will say, well, when, with the protesting, um, like I want to go, but what's the point I'm saying? Well, I think that, uh, the, especially our young people, have been so um, just beaten down and that these things become the tipping point where it's kind of the last straw where people need to vent. And I think just coming alongside, like especially believers, pastors, leaders, just believers, it doesn't, you know, no matter what, but you know, those of us that are in the church, especially in the black church, um, you know, cause I, I mean, I agree with everything you said. Like, I mean, there's, there's so many, um, you know, there are a lot of those black pastors that I'm talking about that are doing these church plans. A lot of them have now walked away from a lot of their white partners when they, when, you know, kind of the curtain gets pulled back uh, and then, you know, they they really get start to see some of them strings that get attached. Right. And then they're kind of like left out, you know, like for nowhere. But I mean, but I, I know a church that actually I think would embody kind of like a good model of, of that addresses a lot of what you're saying. Like there's a there's a church here that that's, that's actually really close to downtown that actually was a young church that started 
um, but then came into an older established black church building that was kind of fledgling and dying and was not reaching the youth. And the young and the older pastor came together and merged a new church. And they actually opened up their church building the other night, uh, the Friday night when the protest started jumping off and had coming in their church. And it's like a really good model. Cause this, I mean, the, the, the older church, the black church that owned the building, they've been there for like over a hundred years. Uh, and this was a new church. And it's actually interesting because the pastor, the younger pastor I'm thinking of was in a very, very, I'm not going to name it, but everybody would know who it is, but in a very established white uh, national global speaker and leader uh, that, you know, you know, kind of ended up leaving from that white institution. And uh, when, you know, when they realized that, that, that support of his plant was coming with a lot of desire to control that, uh, you know, just like, you know, uh, what often happens when you're dealing with the dominant culture. Um, yeah. But, um, oh, I'm sorry to cut you off. Yeah, no, go ahead. Uh, something that I think, because uh, one of the concerns I'm, I'm seeing even with church planning and the young and the old, is like all the young people go to one church, so 18 to 35, and mm-hmm. then all the 36 to mm-hmm. 70, 80 go to another church. So you have strength with sometimes without wisdom, then you have wisdom with no strength. And so mm-hmm. there needs to be Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, working together for us to for us to have a better reach and for us to be uh, more effective in our communities because mm-hmm. that split I feel like is as damaging as the racial split. Uh, mm-hmm. If you just have, then you then you open yourself up to a lot of scandal sometimes because <laughs> mm-hmm. there's not the wisdom coupled up with with the young with the youth. Um, mm-hmm. So I think. You know, and sometimes I'm not saying that older people don't have scandal because they do. Uh, but mm-hmm. I'm just saying that sometimes the working together helps alleviate some of the some of the things we see in, mm-hmm. in our churches. Yeah, no, that's I mean, that's exactly right. And that's, you know, no, I, I 100% agree. And so, I mean, I think that's and I think that's really why, um, like you like you were saying in terms of next step, I think that's why it's so important for um, those of us in the black church you know, to really come out and show solidarity with these people, um, you know, and protest with them. Let come out, get in the protests and let them see you lift up your hands and shout at the top of your lungs, Black Lives Matter. Right. Yes. We're not going to say F the police with them. Yes. We're not going to say we need to fry pigs like bacon, but we can say Black Lives Matter um, and we can say uh, just like people say, God bless America, right? And we don't say God only bless America. People, you know, we, when you say God bless America, nobody says, well, God bless every country. Don't say all all countries matter, you know? Like, yeah, but we're saying God bless America. So we can say Black Lives Matter, right? Um, and so uh, let them hear us and see us saying that. Just And let them let them see us getting on the, coming to where they're at, right? I mean, Paul, when he wanted to reach the Gentiles, he didn't, he didn't sit around in the synagogue waiting for them to show up. But he went out to the Areopagus and he was saying, oh, I see that you're very religious. And he was like studying and learning with them and, and, and bringing the gospel to them. So let's not hold a let's not only hold a church meeting or a pastor meeting or a interfaith prayer meeting and expect them to come to that because they won't. Uh, but let's go to their protest. Let's go to their meeting. Let's go to their uh, action plan. And let's just listen. Let's just listen and participate and see how we can bring our churches alongside in ways that are faithful to the scripture and faithful to uh, our identity as believers. And like, let's show them that we're here for them, right? Again, uh, I think that there's reconciliation needed on so many different levels, but uh, I do see in scripture uh, that, um, that there, you know, so like, like there's reconciliation between rich and poor uh, and needed, but 
in scripture, I see the call on the wealthy to be a little bit more than the call on the poor. There's a call on both sides, right? But there's with, with more power comes more responsibility, right? I'm quoting Spider-Man, <laughs> but but you know, and that's where I do see the onus slightly more on us in the black church, especially those of us that are older, right? To come alongside um, young people, young leaders, right? Because they need that guidance and um, to give them platforms in our churches to really help them lead and not just like kind of a, a perpetual auditioning of like, this is the son and the minister of the armor bearer for like 10 years until I retire, but like to actually give them real power in the church, to give them, you know, co-leading power where we're working together um, and then uh, in, in our churches. So like, I think that's the two-sidedness of it is both going into the spaces of young people, speaking their language, embracing uh, urban hip hop culture where we can, where it's not, you know, uh, just anti-biblical and just irredeemable, uh, you know, but, but you know, where it is kind of embracing, um, you know, you know, uh, where we're able to kind of incorporate that to really, you know, empowering local leaders. I mean, in the same way that a lot of us in the black church, when we've seen the reality of how a lot of white institutions do when they say they want diversity, they pay lip service to it. They might bring one of us in. Uh, then we realize that it's really kind of sometimes we were just there for decoration um, and they're not really trying to actually empower us. And then, so, you know, we have to, we have to, as much as that's wrong and as much as we are validly upset about when that happens, um, we have to also be honest about how we might be doing some of the same thing when it comes to age and like, are we really ready to give younger leaders that are biblically qualified, biblically trained, are we really ready to give them real controlling power and really, really work together? Like this church that I'm talking about here, you know, where young and old have come together and are sharing power, um, you know? And uh, so I think that's the, I mean, if I could, you know, boil it up, I think that the the two-sided approach of what I would, my two cents and based on what I'm seeing is, is, is you know, I mean, is, is black church especially because you know like if we were going to talk about what the white church used to do that'd be a whole other <laughs> and, <I'm probably laughs> and I, you know conversation yeah like there's a whole other but if we're just you know again if we're since we're and i like the fact that we really focus our conversation on how we can be building up because we know that white supremacy is there and we know uh, that there's all those other kind of broader overarching issues that we're also working to change but you know at least internally how we're relating as community if black church can we go into the space of Black Lives Matter? Can we be present? Can we show them our solidarity? Can we can we enter into their reality and just, you know, kind of come alongside them? And then can we create churches and our, can we make sure that our home is more accommodating and more open, uh, you know, on all levels, both for someone coming in off the streets and for someone who's ready to be a leader uh, that it, it, at, for, at every level, can we make it open, accommodating, and be intentional about incorporating, making sure that the that that the black community and the streets are coming into and being nurtured by the black church? Mm-hmm. I think that's very helpful and insightful. What books would you recommend on this topic for people who want to just um, delve more and how they could, you know, uh, seek reconciliation? Um, in this area, as specifically in the Black Church, I, I know you mentioned MLK's uh, autobiography. Mm, Was it yeah. his biography or autobiography? Sorry. Well, actually, either one. Like his autobiography is real. I think that's the best one because that, and I, I forget the author who kind of compiled all the different. 
firsthand writings of Dr. King, kind of put it together with the family's permission as a, um, you know, as an autobiography. Uh, forget the name, but yeah, the auto, I mean, either one, but the autobiography is real powerful because when you hear it in his own words, kind of the way in which the anger uh, of young people, you know, that he encountered and the, the way that he felt it was moving him to really uh, be there for them and enter into their reality, I think is real powerful. Um, but then also, you know, um, I think a really, probably one of my favorite models for what it, for what this uh, looks like in terms of uh, building a church that's catering to young people is um, uh, is Phil Jackson in uh, Chicago, the House Church, uh, which is a, a predominantly hip hop church, mostly young adults. Um, and he wrote a book with Ephraim Smith called The Hip Hop Church uh, that, that came out a number of years ago. And that that's a really good book that just kind of explains and describes what does it look like for young people uh, I mean, it talks about hip hop a lot, but it's really more than just the music, right? But it's the culture of urban youth and how, what does it look like to create a church that is like conducive and, and really speaks to and reflects that culture. Um, and then of course, I think that, you know, the new Jim Crow, a lot of people have heard of that, but I think that is a really good book for a lot of our more established pastors to read. Cause I think that when we're in, I, I've seen this so much in the black community that sometimes we are so, we're so much, embedded in the forest that all we see is the trees and not the forest itself and so sometimes we will sometimes just think about the problems in our community as well you know young people are shooting each other or you know dads aren't in the house or you know uh people are on drugs or people need to just get it together i'm like yes that's all true but there are systems in place that are you know keeping our community the way it is and that the issues we're seeing in our community are more the reaction to those systemic injustices as opposed to the cause of them. And so the, you know, and that's just looking at mass incarceration with Michelle Alexander's book. But I think that it would just be a really good book for a lot of black pastors to read and really just to, you know, see the systemic nature of it. Because I think when we just kind of come out of the forest uh, and just not see the trees, but see the whole system, then it will just naturally engender more of our pastors to say, okay, yes, we need to continue to develop our people, train our people and disciple them. But we also need to start speaking truth to power uh, as well. And so, um, you know, I think that's a good one as well. Also, another good one is uh, by Alexia Salvatierra, uh, Faith Rooted Organizing. I think that's a, also a really good book. It's a really good kind of how to in terms of how from a, from, a, from a Christian perspective, how we can, um, you know, enter into uh, issues of social justice um, and, and neighborhood organizing, asset-based community development, and uh, and advocacy on 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 behalf of the poor and the oppressed, you know, in a way that is uh, helpful. Another another good good book that was written by um, uh, an, uh, another St. Louis uh, theologian. Well, she just recently moved uh, to another seminary, but but Leah Gunning Francis wrote a book called Ferguson and Faith, and that is a really good um, kind of uh, vignette of the movement that happened three years ago, where she did on the ground research and documentation of the role of, you know, um, you know, uh, different clergy. And, um, and of course, I mean, it's again, clergy from across the, across the spectrum, but you know, that's another good kind of vignette, but, but in terms of like, uh, yeah, kind of how to, uh, both on the discipling level, I would say Phil Jackson's book, hip hop church. And then I would say on the systemic, engagement level, I would say uh, uh, Salvatierra, her book is on uh, Faith Reorganizing are real good ones. Awesome. How can people get on social media? Yeah, yeah, you can hit me up, uh, Vince Bantu. Uh, I'm on Facebook and, um, and, and I'm, you know, I'm always posting stuff, so definitely hit me up there, uh, you know, and you can, you know, um, 
you can definitely see me on my church page, uh, Outpour Covenant Church here in St. Louis, uh, outpourstl.org. And then uh, you can also hit me up, email uh, there, Vince Bonto at outpourstl.org. Or you can hit me up uh, through my seminary. I'm at Covenant Theological Seminary, uh, directing the City Ministry Initiative and teaching missiology. So uh, you can um, hit me up there, vince.bonto at covenantseminary.edu. Um, and I'd love to hear from people. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, and, and I, I just want to uh, I want I want to make a little praise praise report that because um, I know most of the time when I'm on here, I'm always talking about early African Christianity. And that's actually my favorite thing to talk about. And I want to give a little praise report that the first the, the complete draft of the book is in is done. So I'm working on revisions right now. So definitely be stay tuned uh, for, you know, that Lord willing, the revisions will be done soon and that that'll be coming out with University Press soon and introdu- the introduction to early African uh, Christianity. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well so thank you so much for tuning in also remember we have our bible engagement app in partnership with back to the bible to help you get better engaged in the bible every single day you take a survey it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you bible verses based on those so it's a great app you can download the app by searching in your app store or google play searching g3 project and it'll be right there for you so thank you again remember if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver you can do so on our website or by mail just go to g3project.com hit that donate tab and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online we appreciate you and i'm so so thankful for you God bless. And remember, here at the Jupe 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.